the balance of power has not only swung towards the middle, but the pendulum has continued to swing in the opposite direction where as an employer, it is so important to attract the right talent. And there is a significant shortage of the type of talent that is readily available for startups to hire. And so that means when you're hiring people, especially in engineering, product design, growth marketing, and so on, you will find as an employer that it is you who is in a sense applying to the candidate and really need to figure out how to make yourself the place that they want to work when they have many, many options. This episode of the Startup Podcast is brought to you by our friends at N14. We spend a lot of time talking about the importance of building out incredible teams of missionaries at your startup. And N14 are a specialist recruiting partner, finding teams of missionary engineers who are excited to work with you and your startup. At N14, they take pride in being open and transparent with candidates and with clients, and they act as an extension and representation of your brand into their network of incredible engineers. Check them out at n14.io. You're listening to The Startup Podcast, a show focused on helping you build, run, and invest in Silicon Valley-style startups. Whether you're an investor, founder, or operator in a startup, you'll gain insights on the principles that power high-growth disruption the way Facebook, Google, and Uber do it. The conversation starts now. Hey, I'm Chris. I've been building products and startups for over 20 years, including 10 years in venture-backed companies in Silicon Valley. I'm now helping a small handful of companies avoid landmines and dead ends to fast forward to the best high growth outcomes as quickly as possible. And I'm Yaniv, a software engineer, operator, coach, advisor, investor, and people geek. I have worked at Google and a number of scale-ups, and I'm now co-founder at Circular, a high growth startup. And our job on this show is to guide you through the unique mindset and approach that it takes to build a Silicon Valley style startup at scale. Hey, just before we get started, I wanted to give a shout out to a friend of the show, John James, who has his own podcast called Champagne Strategy, which I've been listening to for quite a while and always really love listening to. John's got a great background in strategy and marketing. He's also a tech advisor who advises companies on their marketing and their strategy. And he interviews lots of really fascinating people like Sean Ellis and Rich Mirinov and, and other great marketing and product guests from across the industry. He goes all the way from strategy through to the real nuts and bolts tactics and measurement. I find I, I always learn something really great from that. John's also got a background in the champagne industry and he starts every episode with a champagne testing, which I think is a really fun hook. So if you like listening to the startup podcast, you may well enjoy champagne strategy as well. So give it a listen. And in this episode, we're going to discuss hiring and topics such as sourcing, marketing your company, hiring as a sales process, how to choose the right type of startup candidate, the interview process, reference checking and where that fits in. And then finally, salary, equity, and how to close a candidate. And a lot of what we're going to talk about, it might sound like a little bit of overkill. It might sound like a little bit too much rigor or a little bit too intense for hiring certain candidates some of the time. I want to stress that some of it is about scale-ups where you're growing really fast and need to bring a lot of people in and need to do that in a fairly deterministic way. But also it's very important for young companies where they're hiring their first 10 people to do this well and do it with a good amount of rigor because it's almost a cliche to say this and I think inexperienced founders can ignore it as a cliche but it's very important to recognize that people are your strongest asset and your strongest differentiator. They are the most important thing 
you can do in your business to get a great outcome. As a CEO, as a founder, your job is to build the thing that builds the thing, which essentially means to hire great people, create vision and space for them to do their best work and get out of their way. So you don't wanna just be kind of hiring whoever you bump into. You want to do this process with a great amount of rigor. So as you're listening through the episode, you'll hear us talk about how to build that rigor in and how to drive a more deterministic outcome in your hiring. And so hopefully that'll be helpful. So Chris, let's jump right into this one. It's a big meaty topic. It's been quite a long time for technical roles such as engineering, where really compared to maybe a lot of traditional careers and the job market that a lot of people have grown up in, where in a sense, as the employee, you're the, the applicant and also the supplicant, you're kind of saying, please hire me. I want this job. What do I have to do to get hired by you? The balance of power was with the employers where in tech these days, the balance of power has not only swung towards the middle, but the pendulum has continued to swing in the opposite direction where as an employer, it is so important to attract the right talent. And there is a significant shortage of the type of talent that is readily available for startups to hire. And so that means when you're hiring people, especially in engineering, product, design, growth marketing, and so on, you will find as an employer that it is you who is in a sense applying to the candidate and really need to figure out how to make yourself the place that they want to work when they have many, many options. We're in a supply constrained world across every dimension really, right? And if candidates are the supply side in this equation, there aren't enough of them. There are a lot of startups being funded at least in the last few years, we have been awash with capital and there is all these major companies accelerating their digital transformation efforts and trying to act a little bit more like startups. And so good experienced operators are hard to come by, hard to even get on the phone with, and then ultimately hard to close. So uh, I think the first few parts of this episode, we're going to have to discuss how do you go get those candidates and how do you stand out from the crowd? And as we record this, the news is full of a lot of fear, I guess. Markets are down, there's news of layoffs and so on. The supply demand imbalance is so great that anybody looking at what's currently happening in the markets and expecting a meaningful change in that balance of power is probably deluding themselves. Even with some layoffs, the best talent is going to have a lot of options and a lot of leverage. So I think the first thing to consider when it's so hard to hire people, it can be very tempting to outsource key parts of your startup because as difficult as it is to find engineers somehow as a founder you will find your inbox full of spam from agencies offering to build your product for you when is this a good idea and when is this a bad idea one of the things that is often spoken about with startup employees is this concept of missionaries versus mercenaries and of course it's not a full dichotomy people want to earn a living what you pay matters but when you're trying to build something from scratch and you're not quite sure what you're doing and you're trying to create a culture and a level of dedication to solving a problem, it is really important that your first few employees have this type of missionary zeal that not only are they excited by the salary package that you offer or the fact that they can get some work or even not just that they like you, but that they're excited about what your company is doing, that they're bored into it. And one of the reasons is we've talked a lot about product in previous episodes. And the truth is that in order to be able to really deliver value quickly, it's not enough to just be a person who takes orders. I think that's true at every stage of a company, really. But at an early stage startup, you need people who care enough about the problem to be thinking constantly 
about how they might solve that. So the, the big challenge with outsourcing with agencies is by definition, they are mercenaries. They are not people who are bought into your company. They are employees of another company who are being paid by the hour to do work for you, but also quite possibly for others. Chris, I definitely have an aversion to outsourcing, but it doesn't mean that you never do it. But when you're thinking about early hiring, where does it fit in? I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. Look, I've seen some early bootstrapping with an agency here or there to work out fine as long as it's not for too long and too deep an engagement. But beyond the kind of emotional attachment to the problem, as you just described, Yanev, I think the other problem is that agencies tend to function a little bit more like uh, a waterfall process, right? Where you define the requirements, you scope and you price, and then they go and they build. And that's typically not what you want to do at the early stages of a startup or really at any stage of great product development. It's a very iterative, experimental, exploratory process where each of the functions involved, including design and product management and engineering, should be adding value, having deep curiosity and learning the answer together. And so beyond the fact that these people are not your employees, they're not emotionally attached to the problem, they don't have a long-lived relationship with the solution you're building, they also tend to not be organized in a way to work through this iterative, creative process with you. So at the very least, if you are you know, really stuck and you're trying to maybe build that first prototype, you're trying to de-risk that business and earn your first co-founder, as we talked about in the last episode, and you're leaning on an agency to get some early things done, at the very least, don't engage in this very tightly scoped, long-term waterfall process. You need a little bit of agility and iteration built into that process. I think that's actually a really good framing for this. The right time to use an agency early and then at any stage is when you have a piece of work that is appropriate to have a waterfall process, by which I mean, you know exactly what you need done and you just need a pair of hands to do it and you don't need to go back and forth. There isn't a huge amount of uncertainty in it. Now that pretty much precludes any longer term pieces of work, but where agencies can be good is if you have a very specific proof of concept that you already know how to build and you just, or you already know what, how it needs to work and it just needs to be built. Maybe that's okay. Uh, an even more common type of outsourcing to agencies is for things like design or paid marketing, where you actually do know what you want to do. You, you might want a whole bunch of creative created or some copy written. You know what it should be about. You know roughly what it should look like. You don't have those skills. You don't have the time. And so you can outsource that sort of thing to an agency where you're like, here's a set of eight deliverables that I need by the end of next week. Please go do it. But that is really something that needs to happen in addition to rather than as a substitute for having an in-house team. And of course, where it really is the most apparent is in engineering, where good engineers are expensive and difficult to find. So there's often a temptation to just get your app built, to get your website built by an outside agency. And apart from that early prototype stage that we were talking about, that is very rarely a good idea. Also part of building a startup is certainly building the product building traction, proving out hypotheses, but a big part of it is also building out the team. We've spoken in a number of episodes about the idea that investors invest in team in the early stages. And so if your team is outsourced, it's hard for an investor to get signal on whether this particular group of people are great together and are going to execute well. And then in the later stages, when you're going to sell the company, 
you're ostensibly selling the people, the domain expertise, the IP, the institutional knowledge. And so if big chunks of your team are outsourced, that's also very problematic as well. So that's another reason why you want to be careful about outsourcing core parts of the business to third-party agencies. So having dealt with that at the beginning of this episode, we do believe that in a vast majority of cases, you need to hire missionaries as employees in your company. The question is, in this supply-constrained environment, how do you do it? Much as in your product, you have a funnel where there are prospects and you need to convert them to paying customers. With hiring, it's the same thing. You have a funnel of prospective candidates and you're trying to turn them into employees. So given that we're supply constrained, you need to work quite hard at that. So it's worth thinking about that funnel as effectively you are marketing yourself as a workplace. A lot of the work that you're doing in attracting candidates is a question of marketing and distribution of the opportunity and making that opportunity attractive and appealing. The next few pieces that we're talking about are really going to be through that frame of what are the types of marketing activities that are really important to make yourself an attractive workplace. The first thing that is very critical is sourcing, which is that initial top of funnel acquisition uh, piece of the marketing funnel. How do you get candidates interested in your role in the first place? And Chris, I know from your time at Uber, they had a really effective sourcing methodology. When we were talking about early fundraising and pitch decks in a previous episode, we talked about the idea that a pitch deck is useful even before you want to go raise money. It helps align your team and it helps crystallize your thinking. I think a pitch deck can actually be useful in hiring in in this supply-constrained, candidate-constrained world. You almost want to walk some candidates through your pitch deck and explain to them what you're building and how you're building it. Another key piece of marketing material is your team's page. What is your culture? What are your perks? How do you think about team? How do you think about collaboration? Who are we content about your business on your public website, I think is important as well. When I joined Uber, I was employee 3000 globally, probably employee, let's say 1000 in, in headquarters in San Francisco. So it was already a pretty substantial business. But by the time I left only two and a half, three years later, it was something like 20, 25,000 people globally. So that is just a massively fast growth. And I want to say something like 30% of my job was hiring. I was interviewing and participating in hiring committees and decision-making just like all the time and sourcing as well. So it was really a great place to learn how to hire well. And inside Silicon Valley and within the band of people we were trying to hire, which is very, very high performers, it was also very much candidate constrained. So it was a good lesson in how to really stand out from the crowd while hiring. Let me walk through some of the tactics that Uber used. And I actually have a blog post on my website about this at chrissard.com to kind of walk through the, the various stages of the funnel to really drive sourcing, but also to close without having too leaky a bucket. The first thing was to really prioritize hiring company-wide. Now, this becomes more important the bigger the company is when you have more middle managers or engineering managers or product managers and and leaders of different kinds who you can push the sourcing out to the edges. And so you want to say to everybody at the company, really, hiring is part of your role. Sourcing particularly is part of your role. So you want to decentralize that problem, particularly as you're scaling up fast. You want to operationalize that. You want to talk about it at every all hands. You want to talk about the rate of hiring or the quality of hiring or celebrate new hires. 
You want to add it to onboarding education so that new people joining the company understand that priority. You potentially even want to add it to performance reviews. How well do you hire? How well do you grow your team? And you want to do lunch and learns with various teams and stakeholders to teach them how to hire well. So this is all just about making it a priority in your startup, but especially in your scale-up. And then there's sourcing. So you definitely want that great careers page, that great team page to explain who you are, but you need to not just rely on people applying to roles passively. The very best people are super busy and super heads down. And so you need to target people on LinkedIn with laser-like focus who are in the same role or in companies that you admire and reach out to them personally. Personally meaning, hey, I'm the CEO, not a recruiter, or hey, I'm the head of this department, or I'm the head of this team, and I want you for my team, my department, my company. I think you personally are going to be a game changer for us. And I would love just 15 minutes to pitch you on what we're doing. You know, my boss at Uber used this line, who knows, worst case scenario, we make a new friend in the industry, best case scenario, we change each other's life. I just really love that. And I stole that line wholesale and it shouldn't be disingenuous. You should enthusiastically believe what you're working on is game changing and that this is an opportunity for somebody to get in on the ground floor. And then you want to incentivize sourcing and hiring, give hiring and referral bonuses to the team to make sure that they're really motivated to bring in their friends and colleagues that they like. I think that's a good summary. And again, it, it speaks to that funnel of hiring as marketing and hiring as sales. And I think it's actually really clarifying because a lot of folks are going to be more familiar with sales and marketing. And these are very standard types of activities that you're talking about there, Chris. So one is branding. And you talk about employer brand. Sometimes you'll see the term EVP, uh, employer value proposition. And really this is about projecting yourself out there and creating a brand for yourself distinct from your consumer brand or your, your customer brand as, wow, this is a special place to work. I think, you know, that's something that Google did very well. I joined Google at a similar stage in its development as when you joined Uber, Chris, and they'd already built up this mythology with the massages and, and the lunch and the incredibly scaled technology and all the things that the back then were actually really novel. I think they got copied so much that it's maybe less exciting now, but that was a real first mover advantage. And Google's employer brand and mystique as an employer meant they got a huge bump in terms of people applying, in terms of inbound. But also when you talk about things like sourcing uh, and effectively outbound, when you going and reaching out to people, that was incredibly valuable because if a Google recruiter reached out to you, and I think that's still the case for a lot of people, you reply to that and you talk to them. So the brand is incredibly important. And as with branding on your consumer product, sometimes it can be difficult to measure directly how important it is, but it's never too early to start, especially now with so many startups out there. What makes you different? How can you put that out into the market through distribution channels? So that's the brand marketing. Then a lot of the things that you talked about, Chris, also start to become sales oriented, which is how do you reach out to potential candidates and do that initial outbound sales engagement with them? Now, there's a couple of interesting things that you touched on there, which is, first of all, there are recruiters and sometimes it's even subdivided the role into sources, which are effectively that initial outbound sales folks and then recruiters who run the process. But that's your core sales force. But when you are an employer, your most effective sales force, as you said, Chris, 
is all the other employees and not just the sort of professional sources who, who may be on staff, but the authenticity of being able to get other people reaching out and effectively doing that upfront sales engagement is really important. And then just to make it clear how much of a sales activity it is, you mentioned the referral bonus, which is very common. The sales is the most bonus structure driven function in, in just about any company. And so if you want to turn your entire employee base into a sales force, providing direct financial incentives is really important because otherwise it can just be hard for people to prioritize the time. So a referral bonus is a really sensible thing. And then, as you said, again, with sales, you have to train people and how to actually do this stuff. And so that's where you have your internal sessions and so on. So really when you're building a company, you've got these two parallel funnels <laughs> that you need to be building, right? It's the, the customer funnel where you're doing your branding activity, your marketing activity, your sales activity. And then you've got your hiring funnel where you're doing the exact same thing. You're doing employer branding, you're doing employer marketing, and you're doing employer sales. And they tend to have different names, but if you, if you think of it that way, you're really doing the exact same thing and you need to focus on both neglecting your brand, going to outsourced recruitment agencies and not giving them any help. You're going to get the same sort of leaky funnel where you, where you lose the sales as any other undifferentiated brand does when you're selling your product. So you wouldn't do that with your product. You wouldn't just leave sales to someone else and not do anything to differentiate yourself. So don't do that with your company, with your workforce, which is ultimately the thing that is going to enable you to build that enormous venture-backed exit. I really, really love thinking of it as sales and marketing and, and using it as an analog. I think that's extremely powerful and clarifying. The next question then, Yanev, is if, if we're jumping on these calls, really pitching candidates, that's the way to get them in the door, right? To get them on the hook, so to speak. But at some point we need to start evaluating them as a fit for the, the work we need done and for the company that we're building. I think there are some particular things we can talk about how to run a great interview process, but you've got to note here in our agenda about what makes a, a candidate a good fit for being in a startup in general. So tell me more about your thinking on that. First of all, I'd say we talked about missionaries versus mercenaries, especially at that early stage. You want to index fairly strongly on missionaries and on culture, because they say your first 10, your first 20 people will have an outsized impact on your company's culture. And it's really important that the sort of people that you've got have that missionary zeal. That doesn't mean that they aren't rational or skeptical. I think that's important, but they have to really dig what your company is doing. So I think that's table stakes. And then in terms of skill set, the earlier you go, people are wearing multiple hats. Sometimes you talk about aligning towards generalists. I think for more junior roles, it can really be something like, yeah, let's bring someone in who's just smart and energetic and missionary, and they will throw themselves into whatever needs to be done and do a pretty good job of it. I think that is important for more senior roles. And again, it's, again, depending on the sort of company you're building, you are going to require specialized skills, but even with someone like that. You want someone who's at least got that, sometimes call it the, the T-shaped profile where they might be deep in one area, but it doesn't mean that they silo themselves to that. They still have that breadth across multiple areas because at a startup, even if you do have that specialized role, you're going to have a whole bunch of little side hustles, side gigs within the startup where you need to get involved. But at that early stage, everyone should be a little bit into everything that's happening. There's a time later maybe where for the true specialist, someone who likes to 
sit in the corner and just do their thing and do it incredibly well. But at an early stage, that's not a good fit. You really want someone who is happy wearing multiple hats. And ultimately, even if they have those specialized skills, just mucking in and doing whatever it is that needs to be done. Now, the other piece of that is someone who can be really autonomous and work well in an unstructured environment because your environment will be unstructured. And again, a valuable skill at any stage, but you know, particularly important to index in at that early stage, people who are good at being assigned a task and doing that task and not going to necessarily thrive in a startup, because again, there's an analogy with the broader thing of what's a startup. You've got a problem and you need to figure out the solution. Well, every employee at that startup will be given the outline of a problem more than an actual task. So you'll be told, Hey, we need to fix this. So this needs to happen. Go do it. And so someone who's really autonomous to the point of being a little bit entrepreneurial themselves, that they will identify problems and figure out how to fix them. That's really important. And that's as much a temperamental thing, a, you know, a so-called soft skill as it is a particular aspect of someone's training. Those are some of the things I look at. Great culture ad, missionary zeal, the ability to be a generalist and a bit of an entrepreneurial mindset. How about you, Chris? I agree with everything that you're looking for there. I, I absolutely want to look for those things as well. I'm also looking for signals that these people are high performers. And for me, that means four key things. I listen for and ask questions around ownership. And I listen for people who blame others for all their past failures. Or when you ask them how they might get some certain job or task done, they mention a lot of dependencies on other departments and other people and other processes versus expressing a, a deep sense of ownership of like, hey, yeah, I screwed this thing up once. I learned a lot from that. Oh, if you would ask me to do that, I would pull out all the stops. You know, often you might rely on this or that, but usually I just throw up a web page and I get it done. That's what I look for in early startup hires. The other thing I look for is speed and hustle, which is related to that first thing. When you ask them how long it might take you to do A or B or C, you want to listen for answers that are in days, maybe weeks versus uh, many weeks, maybe months. Obviously it needs to be tethered to reality. It can't be completely unrealistic time frame. but you want to sense that they have an impatience with the world and with bureaucracy and with wasted time. If they're a product manager or a designer or a marketer, you want to really look at their portfolio of work. If they're a product manager, you might have them do a bit of homework on a product problem you guys are facing and actually get them to do a mini PRD, a mini blog post and explain to you how they might go about solving that problem, do a jam session with them on that. If they're a designer or a product marketer, get them to walk through their portfolio of either design work or go to market work. So really dig into their prior experience in a very practical way. And then also I say some things on, on various episodes that may feel unfair or, or judgmental or pejorative, but these things are typically important shorthands. Watch out for people who've exclusively worked at large companies and agencies who do not express an extreme discomfort with the bureaucracy of a large company or the kind of temporal nature of agency work. I'm not saying having worked at a large company and agency is a disqualifying resume item. I'm saying people who have exclusively worked in those places and at the same time do not express discomfort with the difference between those places and a startup are also something to watch out for as well. 
I think just to highlight something that, that might seem slightly contradictory, but isn't the subtlety there, as you said, don't hire people who blame others, but then also when you're hiring someone from a big company or from an agency, don't hire them unless in a sense they express frustration and dissatisfaction, which is a type of blaming others. Right. But I think it's a bit of a specific sort of exception to the rule. I think the reason I bring this up is it needs a bit of probing to tell, is this person expressing frustration with a big company because they are the type of person who blames others, or are they expressing frustration because of that genuine entrepreneurial zeal that has kind of been suppressed at the big company? You need to dig a little bit deeper into what they actually tried to do. If they just sat there and took orders and then didn't get much done and they were like, ah, big companies suck. That's one thing you actually want to get a sense that they tried hard, that they were activists internally to try to move faster, to get more things done and that they failed because the system was in a sense against them. So they're kind of like a little rebel and they're leaving the empire to join a rebel alliance. You need to get that sense that they really did try to affect change or to move faster. And that they have made the decision to leave the big company because they've realized that the system is simply not going to allow them to do that. If they simply sat there and, you know, were a victim of the system, then that falls more into the complaining bucket. Yeah, I, I like that. You really want to listen for structural concerns rather than interpersonal concerns and empathy for the people who are in the structure without throwing them under the bus. And perhaps even better that they've been effective within the structure, but yet they're still dissatisfied that the structure moves too slowly or is too complicated to get great stuff done. And so it's not like, well, I sat there, nothing I was working on was interesting. And so I just felt bored and despondent. And so I want to go rather than, no, I, I, you know, spun up a whole initiative. I got a bunch of people excited. We built consensus. And at the last minute, because of someone five layers up from me, we just could not get anything out. But everybody was excited and enthusiastic about it. And, you know, I understand this person's position. There was, you know, a bit of risk aversion or innovator's dilemma, but ultimately I want to find a place that's more product-led or less bureaucratic or something like that. For example, myself at Uber, actually, I had this really big initiative that even for Uber was quite bold and potentially disruptive and maybe a little bit more entrepreneurial than the stage at the company was at. And uh, there were people who were ostensibly against me, who worked against that initiative. But I never then, or nor now, do I blame them for the role they played in that, right? I, I think structurally the company was not designed to digest that kind of rapidity or that kind of change of thinking. And I think there were certain communication missteps that I made and interpersonal missteps that I made. And so I'll often, if ever I tell that story, will be quick to take full ownership of that and explain what I learned about that and so on. So yeah, it's an interesting balancing act, as you said, Yanev, and an important one to listen for. A reminder that today's episode is brought to you by N14. One of the things that we love about N14 is that they fit into your hiring process rather than the other way around. So if you want to do something like make the final offer to the candidate yourself, there are only two happy for you to do that. Check them out at n14.io. So in order to differentiate between great candidates that fit the role and culture of your business and candidates that are not going to be a great fit, you want to design an interview process that gives you a broad sense of their capabilities, their skill, their fit, and while mitigating the possibility that this candidate drops out of the process or feels 
kind of a lot of pain and suffering and lag. Let's think about what you're trying to achieve with an interview process. You're really going through an exercise where you are trying to minimize false positives and minimize false negatives at the lowest possible cost. So in other words, you're taking the person through the process and ultimately you want to hire the right people and reject the right people. Uh, in general, you also want to bias towards never having a false positive, never hiring the wrong person, even at the expense of rejecting a few people. What this means for the interview process is you need to think about each stage of that interview process as what is the incremental differentiation it provides, given what you already know about the candidate. The first step might be able to say, okay, we reject 80% of candidates and we learn a little bit about those 20%. Now, if those 20% remaining, given what we already know, what's the next stage that's going to have the highest power of discrimination? And I use that term discrimination in the technical sense, not in the bad political social sense of simply being able to differentiate between the candidates who ultimately will perform well and the candidates who ultimately would not were you to hire them. And at the same time, there is a cost to interviewing for you and for the candidate. So you always need to be making this cost-benefit trade-off and thinking, how can I get the most signal for the least effort on both our part and the candidate's part? That's really what we're trying to do at the holistic level. Here are some tips and tricks for how to do that, and particularly how we did that at Uber as well. You want to construct a full interview loop, and it's ideal that all of the interviews are happening on the same day so that the candidate and you are not going through multi-day, multi-week, will they and won't they kind of cliffhanger nail biters, right? Now, of course, that might span two days or something, but you want to try to get it all tightly packed in as short a period as possible. On that loop should be multiple stakeholders across your business. And the way you pick these stakeholders, they should represent the functions that person in their role are going to interact with the most. So if you're interviewing for a product manager, they're likely going to interact with sales, support, engineering, design. So you want representatives from each of those functions to be in the interview loop, one after the other, or sometimes paired up. In each of those interviews with those functions, those people should be looking for general kind of cognitive and competency signals. But they should also be looking for how does this candidate interact with my function? So a designer would be asking questions around how does this product manager think about, respect, interact with, motivate, incentivize design? And where does design fit into their product management process? An engineer would be looking for how does this product manager think about engineering? Do they have a good attitude about that? Do they understand what the, the role of engineering is? Do they understand this concept of product manager decides what and in what order and engineering decides how and by what date? And do they have a healthy respect for handing off great requirements to engineering and so on? Support might be fishing for things around, does this product manager understand the support implications of their product and creating explosions of tickets and confusion amongst users that support has to pick up? Or do they have a healthy respect for support in terms of reaching out to them once a week, once a fortnight, once a month, and understanding what the top tickets and pain points are to fold into the roadmap. And so each of these functions are looking for how this person interacts well, plays well with others across different functions. And of course, if you're hiring a product manager to continue that example, 
you want a strong product management presence in the interview loop. Someone who is senior to this person that's being interviewed to look for how they understand that craft and that work style for their function. So constructing that loop tightly within one or two or three days and constructing it well with all the key functions is essential to having a great loop with great signal processing and with minimal retention problems with candidates falling out of the loop. Then you can very quickly that same evening or that same week have an interview committee where everybody can, everybody that was on the interview loop can uh, make a decision. And there we wanted to free that process of bias. And so what we actually did at Uber was a thumbs up, thumbs down process. So everybody would all be in the meeting around the table and we'd say, okay, well, how do we feel about candidate X? And everybody at the same time would do thumbs up, thumbs down. If you absolutely needed to, you might do thumbs neutral, kind of uh, horizontal. And the people who are in the minority generally spoke first, defending their minority position of like, no, I don't think this is a good candidate because I saw signals of this, 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 and this. And did anybody else see any data to uh, allay my fears or to reinforce my concerns about that? Uh, and then one last thing I'll say is that the hiring manager should really set this loop up very, very well. At Uber, what we did was we had the hiring manager send out an email to all of the people on the loop ahead of time and to tell them what their job was on the loop. Hey, everybody, you know, I really like candidate X for this role, but here's what your roles are on this loop. Sally, your product, I want you to dig into their product craft and whatever. When I spoke to them in the early pitching stage, I got some weird signal about this or that. So please dig into this. Hey, John, I need you to look into their respect and response to sales and marketing. I need you to figure out if they know how to do this. And perhaps between interviews, because all the members of the loop know about each other and know what each other are doing, they might even send signals to each other and go, hey, I, I wasn't able to dig into this thing. We ran out of time or I got a weird signal on this. Can you please double check that in your interview with them as well? And so that's a really, really well-constructed interview process that's extremely deterministic. You know, there's always going to be false positives and false negatives, but you're trying to vacuum out the uncertainty and the confusion and the lag time in getting this candidate through the process and getting a decision made. Yeah, Chris, I, I don't feel as anything like a, a sort of a noise-free process, but I think how you describe that is really good. And there's just a couple of things I wanted to dig into there in terms of how you structure that overall loop. Like with anything that you're trying to achieve, it's important to understand what the outcome is. And that means to have a job description and a job description doesn't mean like X years of experience, blah, blah, blah. The knowledge, skills, and attributes framework sometimes gets used. What attributes, what skills, what knowledge does this person need to have in order to succeed at the job? Because if you haven't got an opinion on that, you don't really know what you're assessing for. So once you have that knowledge, skills, and attributes, you want to actually break that down in a sense into what's sometimes called a hiring rubric. And this sounds like a lot of paperwork and bureaucracy. That's not the idea. The idea is that for each of those interviews that you're conducting, you have a clear idea of what it is that you are looking for in the candidate uh, and what you're grading them on. So if you're doing an interview where you're trying to assess their technical skills, have a rubric that actually mentions which technical skills are important to you in that role. This is a great guide to the interview, but it's also a bias reducer because it means that when you are putting in your feedback and forming an opinion, that you are actually considering it relative to a few fixed points, which are the things that are important to you about this person in this role, rather than just kind of your overall impression or your vibe. 
that's really an important bit of pre-work to do in order to have a good hiring loop. Now, the other thing I wanted to dive into a little bit, Chris, is the making a decision piece. We talked about sitting in a room, the thumbs up, thumbs down. It's strange to me at how many companies you run a process, sometimes with a reasonable amount of rigor, and the entire point of the process is to get to a point of deciding whether or not to extend the candidate an offer, right? You get to the higher, no higher decision. That's the whole point. How casually and informally that decision gets made. That's the whole point of the thing. You need to put a little bit of rigor into the decision-making process. Now, there are different ways to do it. Personally, I think there's value in writing down your feedback, but even if you're, you're all getting in a room, there's a couple of things that's important. First is to avoid biasing each other as interviewers. You do not share your opinion on the candidate until everyone's had a chance to form their own opinion independently. That helps avoid groupthink uh, and interviewers biasing each other. Now, the other thing that's important to do is not just to have a vote or majority rule or anything like that. As you said, Chris, it's about considering all the different interviews, all the different interviewers' perspectives as inputs, as data points to a decision-making process and to make that decision holistically. So you, you need to have a discussion, a debate, and then a decision-making process about whether to extend that candidate an offer. And if you don't do that, you've just gone through a really costly process of assessing a candidate and you've thrown away most of the data, which is crazy. So this is actually the highest leverage part of the whole thing. And if you don't put in the effort, which means at least some sort of meeting, I would say, to make a proper hiring decision, then you've really missed a big part of the point. Now, the final thing I wanted to jump in on a little bit, which is much more a nuts and bolts thing, is around pacing and communication of the process. Uh, especially again, in a candidate poor environment, it's the sales view here, which is always be closing another sales slogan, which is time kills all deals. You want to be moving through this process at a nice tempo. You don't want to have many stages. You don't want to have many weeks between stages. And most of all, you do not want to have long periods of radio silence with the candidate. You want to be in a frequent contact and a communication with them, keep up that sense of momentum and really get through to an offer stage as quickly as possible. If you don't do that, remember, they're probably interviewing elsewhere. You're giving them more chances to get cold feet. You are allowing some of the energy and enthusiasm to dissipate. So move fast, always be closing. And even if you don't end up making that candidate an offer, they will have had a better interview experience if you move fast, rather than if you leave them hanging for weeks and weeks and then turn them down. The context setting that you talked about about what you're looking for in the role, what you're looking for in a candidate for the job, that really should go in that first email that I mentioned. As the hiring manager, you email everybody on the loop and tell them, hey, here's the role. As a reminder, we're looking for someone to solve these kind of problems for the team. We think they need this kind of experience, these kinds of attributes. And then the per interviewer assignment of, hey, you're in marketing, I need you to check for this and this. And hey, you're in product, I need you to check for this and this. The other thing I would say is when you talk about candidate communication, at Uber, we used to give the candidate the interview loop and we used to basically give them the answer. So we'd say, hey, you're going to meet with these four or five people. Here are their job titles and their areas of responsibility. And they're going to be looking for this, this, and this from you. <laughs> we would just be very transparent with them. The test is not whether they know what the interviewer is looking for. The test is whether they know what information to provide and how they think. And so we would literally say, you know, 
hey, you're going to meet with Sally. She's in marketing. She's going to look for how you think about marketing as part of your role in product management and really help the candidate to feel comfortable and confident with the process that they're going through. And the other note I'll make is while they're going through all these interviews, you want to make sure each interviewer is giving the candidate an opportunity to ask questions towards the end or throughout the process. So I'll often do an interview by saying, hey, let me give you five seconds about who the hell I am. And I literally say it that way. I'll, How did I tell you who the hell I am first? And then we can learn more about you and see if you're a fit for the role. And then at the end, I'll kind of you know, uh, jokingly apologize for peppering them with questions and say, okay, now it's your turn. What do you want to know about me, about the company, about the role, anything you like, I'm here as an open book to help you out. It's a give and take. And that's particularly true in a candidate constrained world, not only because you're trying to pitch the candidate throughout the process, but you're trying to leave a good taste in their mouth as they go and talk about you in the rest of the talent pool but also because you want this candidate to feel really great about the company and, and jump on board when you make them an offer. That speaks to what we were talking about earlier, which is you're always selling as well as assessing. And these are not two sort of distinct phases. And yes, the get the candidate to ask every interviewer questions piece is, is really important out of respect and as an opportunity to sell. I wanted to talk about reference checking because as I've done this for longer, I've actually learned to appreciate the value of checking references properly. And what I mean by properly is quite often reference checking has done as this pro forma thing where you call up the referee and you're like, Hey, I'm thinking of hiring so-and-so. What do you think of them? And that person of course says, Oh yeah, they're great. I really like them. And you've learned pretty much precisely nothing except that that person knows who to put on their list of referees. But I've actually started doing reference checks that are more like a little interview themselves where you ask the referee questions about that person's work history, what they did, how they dealt with certain situations. I've also forced them, I've also asked them to do what's called a forced ranking exercise where you say, here are five attributes of the candidate, rank them in order from which ones are strongest in the candidate to which ones are the weakest. You give them an opportunity to signal to you what the candidate's good at and what they're not good at without feeling like they're throwing their mate under a bus. So you can actually glean a meaningful extra signal from a reference check even if the referee was provided by the candidates. That's something that we've started to do more of and found it quite valuable. Yeah. Let's come to just the final topic for today, which is the offer and close. So you've done the interviewing, you have made a decision that you want to hire this person. You've come up with a package and salary and equity, we, we will make the topic of a different episode, but you've done that. And now you're trying to get that person an offer. So how do you do that? First of all, you want to move fast. And again, maybe I'm repeating myself, but always be closing. So from the point that the candidate has their final interview to when you get an offer in front of them, in my view is ideally under 24 hours. Don't give them a chance to get cold feet, to receive other offers, to accept other offers. Get that offer to them. You want this person put on a charm offensive. So move fast. And then contact them. Ideally, this is a, a phone call or a video call rather than just an email. And ideally, this comes from one of the founders rather than say a recruiter or the hiring manager on their own. Because what you are trying to do is you're wooing this person, you're proposing to them. I don't know why I keep bringing marriage into all my analogies, but you're saying, we really want you to join us a lot. And we're excited to have you on the team and you'll be able to make a big difference. And one of the ways you signal that is that 
the top people in the company are personally making that appeal. So even if you have a recruiter, and especially if you're using an agency recruiter, my advice would be, do not let them make the offer. You make the offer and you position it to the candidate as this is something that is a valuable and meaningful offer and is a sign of how excited we are to have you on the team. Please join us. Now, some companies offer, you know, provide exploding offers saying, okay, you have to decide whether you take this offer in 24 hours or not. To me, that's kind of a scumbag move. I think the, the timing piece is one directional. You want to move really fast. You don't want to get off on the wrong foot by pressuring the candidate into accepting an offer before they're ready. They may be waiting for other offers and weighing them up. You have to respect that. They may want to take more time to think about it, to talk to family or friends or mentors. You need to give them that time. And of course, everything I suppose has a limit in the end, but, um, let the candidate take their time. And while they're doing that, again, keep the communications up. Don't be naggy or hassly, but try to pop up in their messages like once a day to say, Hey, how's it going? Let me know if you've got any questions or any other thoughts that, that I can help you with your decision and so on. And just keep yourself top of mind for them. And hopefully they will say yes. One of the techniques we used at Uber to try to increase the closing rate of candidates was to pretty shortly after sending them the offer, letting the interview loop know that the offer has gone out and encouraging them to earnestly and authentically reach out to the candidate and express their enthusiasm for them joining the team and perhaps even the rest of the team that that person is joining. And this happened to me actually, as I was joining Uber, I started getting emails from the team that I would be joining saying that they'd heard about me and that they're super excited that there's just tons to do and tons of opportunity for my contribution. It just felt great. I was like, oh my God, these people are so sweet and so awesome. They're genuinely enthusiastic about my contribution. We used to call those love bombs. There are different shapes and, and ways you can do this. Maybe you send them a care package of some kind or what have you, but I agree with you, Yanev, 100%, which is to get back to them quickly, get back to them with a clear offer. Don't do scumbaggy moves. And uh, I think both at the beginning in the initial sourcing step and in the closing step, you really want to have the most senior person you can have involved in that, whether that's the CEO in a fairly small young company or the VP of, or the head of, or the, just find the most senior person you can to reach out and the most senior person you can to close. At one stage, I would run up to Travis and do a selfie. <laughs> And like, or get him to do a video call with my candidate. <laughs> and so I'd get the CEO to chime in on some of those particularly great gets. And it was all just a bit of fun. And so you definitely want to lean right into that process. Hell yes. And <laughs> you call it a care package. You don't want to move all the way to the, the level of a bribe. <laughs> I learned from a recruiter I used to work with and a head of people about what he called irrational attachment. And you do want to. You want to do something for someone that makes them feel kind of particularly well disposed towards you. I had a candidate last week who I know likes IPAs. I sent him a six pack through a 15 minute grocery delivery app. So it was just one of those in the moment things. And I'm sure that wasn't the thing that led this person to accept, but it creates a sort of a nice rapport and, and sort of deepens those things. So definitely doing little things like that. And yeah, the love bomb, I still remember that what I got from Google, which was more than 15 years ago. I remember some of the emails I got from the people who interviewed me. So yes, incredibly powerful stuff. 
Awesome. Hopefully that was helpful to founders of young startups that are growing or scale-ups that are growing super fast. We talked in this episode about the supply constraint of candidates and how you really need to pull out all the stops, how you need to be careful about outsourcing parts of your business to agencies, including recruiting agencies who may or may not really represent you well and really do the leaned in thing. We talked about hiring as marketing and sales and building that sales pipeline, that hiring brand and empowering the whole company to source and land candidates. We talked about finding entrepreneurial people who haven't been mired in bureaucracies or agency-like thinking that don't express a good amount of discomfort with that prior work and running a really great interview loop to build an efficient evaluation process for great deterministic outcomes for hiring great people. And finally, how to think about making an offer and closing those candidates with love bombs and other enthusiastic expressions of interest to get the candidate over the line. All right, that's our episode. People have been asking how to work with us on a one-on-one -on -one basis. So Yanev, as we talked about last episode, you're not generally available for one-on-one -on -one engagements, although you're always open to some amazing offer. So feel free to reach out to Yanev on all the socials. For my part, I've carved out some time to work with startups. Check out chrissard.com slash advisory for more info on that. And don't forget to follow us and engage with us on Twitter. Chris is at Chris Saad. I'm at Y Bernstein. Also, subscribe to the podcast. Write some reviews on Apple Podcasts if you're an Apple user. Every time one of those comes in, it kind of makes my day and it makes it easier for other people to find us. Keep that direct feedback coming. We love that. Another thing that makes our day is when people tell us that we've made a positive difference in their work. All right, awesome. Catch you guys in the next one. See you, Chris. Today's episode was brought to you by N14. We love N14 because they put your priorities as a startup first. For example, most agency recruiters charge a percentage of the candidate's salary, but that means that if you need to offer a little bit more to close the deal, you end up paying more. How does that make sense? So instead, N14 charges you a flat rate no matter what the salary is. Even better, they offer an installment plan so that your precious cash flow is impacted as little as possible. Check them out at n14.io.